Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Some hot ham water. And my adulthood friend, Minty Boo. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Please check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to it. We've got some great video content on there already, and there's more streaming activity being added all the time. So do please watch those, share them on social media if you like them. And you can also subscribe to our Twitch channel to tune in to watch us stream live, twitch.tv slash O3C podcast. Also, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Our3Cents, and have a look at the amazing perks you can get in exchange for some pennies of pledges from your good selves. We'd be very glad of the extra support, which will hopefully help us make even more amazing content for you to enjoy. So, this week we have our 26th favourite video games of all time. 26. We're three quarters of the way through, which is insane. It really is. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz battlefield, where Chris and Minty are dueling it out, legs akimbo, (laughs) for reasons unknown, (laughs) and (laughs) with only three points separating them. Okay. Okay. Nintendo had tremendous success with their SNES console. True. (laughs) (laughs) Not including the D-pad, how many buttons did its controller have? Eight. Fuck. Oh! Minty is in there not only first, but also with the correct answer on his first attempt. I didn't think about start and select. I was just thinking about the face buttons and the shoulder buttons. That's my fault. Well done, Minty. You are now just two points behind again. Oh, back down to double figures. Yep. (laughs) So we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. At RetroGamer99 asks, if you could see any game remastered or remade, what would it be? Now, we've talked a fair bit quite recently about preservation of games. Mm. And I think that that is a, it, it is a very important thing. And like before really sort of thinking about those sort of issues, I would always said I'd rather see something original and new than just a remake or a remaster of something. Because quite cynically, I often think, well, that's just a quick buck. But then when you see some of the love that goes into remaking games and remastering games. Like, I mean, off the top of my head recently, the Spyro reignited trilogy, they did beautiful work and, you know, it helped bring those classic games to a new audience. But then you've also got things like Final Fantasy VII, which is being remade on an enormous scale. And I'm not entirely sure why. (laughs) I mean, I think think it's probably because they can, and because, you know, yeah, it's a classic game. But then people, I think, would still be talking about Final Fantasy VII at, with the same reverence if they did or did not remake it. But, you know, it looks amazing and it's going to make them so much money because they're going to release it in like six installments, like probably 70 quid a pop. Uh, so, you know, why not? But thinking about this question, I was thinking that, you know, it is it is nice to see games that are on the verge of perhaps being forgotten given either a fresh lick of paint, just introduce them to a new audience. So I would 
almost certainly opt for a Saturn game to be remade or remastered because I think the level of artistry being shown on the platform wasn't necessarily matched by the technical capabilities of the <laughs> yeah, system. Certainly. You know, we've we've talked about we've talked about things like Panzer Dragoon Saga, obviously, like if that was I mean it would have to be remade entirely because we know the source code is is gone down the back of a sofa, as I said last <laughs> gone week. With the wind. Just that would be absolutely amazing to see, given the modern treatment. Shining the Holy Ark. Obviously, it's a game I... I say, obviously, it's a game I love. It's one I haven't really mentioned at all <laughs> because <laughs> because of my huge love for it. I, you know, me and, me and my brother Alex often talked about how great that would look in, you know, kind of like high res, beautifully sort of like drawn sprites and backgrounds, the music being reorchestrated. But also, I'd love to see a gorgeous like 4K remake of Rayman. Obviously, it's fresh in my mind from talking about it a couple of weeks ago and and also having revisited it on the Saturn recently as well. But the gameplay doesn't need much of a tarting up at all. It still plays mm. great, but oh, it would be lovely to see some like gorgeous hand-painted backgrounds, HD sprites, fully orchestrated re-recording of the soundtrack, which would actually get done then. And I reckon it would sell really well as well, to be honest. I think, um, you know, so do that. Make, make that happen. But also... Now, obviously, I'm very aware that this is not one answer. Greedy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also, I thought this. I thought about this, and I think about this occasionally, how great it would be if, in the style of Link's Awakening, the remake on the Switch, I'd love to see a remake of Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, oh, yes. the Game Boy Color yes. ones. But imagine if they also included the unfinished third game as well, released it as a trilogy pack, called Oracle of Time. And I would buy the most expensive special (laughs) edition of that ever. My God. How about you guys? What game would you like to see remastered or remade? Minty? I've been racking my brains all week. And I think to come at it from a slightly different angle, the other night as I was trying to get to sleep, I googled, why are some watches so expensive? (laughs) (laughs) This is a very different angle. (laughs) They say the Lord moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> Try seeing Minty approach a question. Yeah. And the reason I can gather is because people who make watches, especially high-end luxury watches, are trying to come at the mechanism from a different way. Like, all the little cogs and sp- springs. I don't know. I, don't know I assume. Sp- <laughs> switches, valves. Switches, valves, cogs. <laughs> tiny little... Bottles full of air. I don't know what goes into a watch. <laughs> little little ant on a treadmill powered by potato. <laughs> Everything that goes inside a watch, like all the high-end luxury watchmakers try and invent new ways of doing it. So all those man hours and all that research really drives the price up, up to like seven figures. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at my lovely new watch. Anywho, sorry we don't have a house anymore. <laughs> it's It's absolutely baffling. And then I also read that like the ch- the cheapest watches you can get are usually far more accurate at telling the time. <laughs> <laughs> Tried and tested, not broke, don't fix it. Which is a damning statement on the idea of remakes in general. <laughs> <laughs> so I started thinking about games that I because m- most games that I love and would love to see a remake of have already been remade. Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Gresso did an, a, a fantastic job on on the on the handhelds wind waker and twilight princess again yeah. yeah amazing well i've got my list up in front of me and in the next couple of months i've got two remakes i had a link to the past on the when it was remade on the game boy advance which was 
it was pixel for pixel, just a straight remake. Mm-hmm. But they added in a dungeon based on the Four Swords stuff that they were doing at that point. Oh, yes. And also, this is what I didn't like about it. They put in the voice clip of Young Link. For, so you'd be like, ah, uh, ah. Ah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, That's it, interesting. Didn't like it. Didn't like it one bit. <clears throat> I played it on mute. <laughs> yeah. Just to spite them. So I think my answer would be, instead of making Super Mario Brothers 3 16-bit, like they did in uh, Super Mario All-Stars on the SNES, make it, completely remake it, pixel for pixel, in, in the way that Mario 3 levels are done on Mario Maker 2. So it's still yeah. very, very high def, Yeah, but it's still those classic sprites that we love to see. That would be nice. Imagine just uh, Super Mario All-Stars just done in the Mario Maker 2 engine for each one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty tasty. That could happen. We've still got all these amazing teased 35th anniversary Mario stuff that's meant to be coming this year at some point. And Mm. it's been suspiciously long since Nintendo Direct, a proper one. We shall see. How about you, Chris? What what game would you like to see? Mine's really short and sharp and, and snappy. I don't know if you've heard of this one. I really want a remake of Child of Eden which was a 360 PS3 era game that was basically the pseudo-sequel to Res. Ah, and yes. At, at the time I bought it, I played it a bit, but I kind of, I discounted it because it, it wasn't enough like Res. Like, it was just a little bit different yeah. <laughs> and it sort of unsettled me to, you know, from a game that I really, really loved and it just wasn't quite the same. Like, it's still an on-rail shooter, but it's first person rather than third mm. person. The stage is a little bit longer. The, the scoring mechanic is tied more to like the rhythm of your play, which which should be something I like, but it never felt that accurate. And at the time, I just kind of put it down. I never gave it a proper go. But in VR, like, you know, Res Infinite came out a few huh. years ago and, and I cannot go back to playing it in 2D anymore. Yeah. Like it's it's just such a, an improvement in, in terms of the whole experience. I think Child of Eden could do the same thing. And again, that's not, it's not a big deal in terms of like what it would take to actually remaster it in that way. So yeah, maybe one day, the VR train is still kind of rumbling slowly. So it, it could be something that happens in the future, but it, it's a beautiful game. And, and I think I would enjoy it a lot more if I could play it in that virtual reality context. Yeah. I think it really does deserve that sort of remaster. And out of anything I could think of in, in sort of either going right back, like like you both have, or, or something more recent, that was the one that I really felt that deserved another chance from me at least. <laughs> so, you know, a remaster would, would give me that option. So what have we been playing this week? Minty, what have you been playing this week? Ooh. Still tailing on Vesperia? No, I'm not actually. The reason I'm not playing it this week is because I'm playing Bug Fables. Oh, that's Bug Fables. That's the Paper yeah. Mario alike game, isn't it? It's the Paper Mario alike that came out on the Switch earlier this year and ah. like last year on PS4, you know, all the proper consoles. It's fine. Like it's a good seven out of ten <laughs> title. As I mentioned earlier, when playing through the Origami Kin. It's like a logical reaction to the whinging, spittle-flecked fan base that can't appreciate the evolution <laughs> of a series that's, yeah, you know, has admittedly given us some absolute howlers. <laughs> and maybe a third of the way through, I think, and it's you know it's it's enjoyable enough thus far. You, you know, you're you're uh, you're a trio of adventurers with unique abilities that the developers desperately try to make work not only together in the sort of you know, the classic turn-based battle system, but also in the overworld as puzzle-solving mechanics. Like, the, the bee can hit switches from far away. 
upturned cranks that make platforms rise and fall. The moth can freeze water and enemies to make stepping stones as well as create a bubble like a force field. Uh, the beetle can cut down long bits of grass. You need to use these abilities to progress in the levels, but it's never really done in a satisfactory way. Like the controls are a bit clunky and unresponsive, and there's just a... Mm. Yeah, I've been getting very, very annoyed with it because sometimes it'll just straight up ignore a button input. Would you say that it's a little bit buggy? <laughs> oh, just, 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 <laughs> just a slice. Um, there is yeah, there is a lack of polish to account for the fact that it's... It's not first-party Nintendo. Well, that's it, yeah. yeah. It just needs that little bit more polish. It's pretty difficult to guess which way your character will throw their boomerang or how long it'll take mm. for them to, to decide to act mm. on whatever button you press like, i don't know if it's my controller or whether it's input lag or something else but when you've got something that is so clearly an homage to a superior game like paper mario it needs to control just as tightly yeah like the beetle's horn attack needs to be instantaneous like mario's hammer is the boomerang should cling to wheels and cranks so you don't need to try and position yourself in the right position three or four times buttons aren't really utilized fully but there's 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 loads that just don't do anything menu in it is a slog imagine having <laughs> to press start and flicking through pages and pages of menus in this day and age just to eat a leaf oh. <laughs> just map an, map the item menu to a shoulder button call it good yeah but yeah despite this still good to play Puzzles don't have that eureka moment, but it's still fairly rewarding beating them, even if it's just so that you don't have to do them anymore. Combat's nice as well. Each character excels at one thing, and most enemies are designed to have one of their abilities as an exploitable weakness, which gives fights nice. a nice cerebral element. Mm. It's packed with extra goodness as well, and lots of, lots of avenues for different kinds of commerce, which we love in our RPGs. <laughs> Item shops, kitchens to cook up healing and damaging recipes. Uh, instead of badges from Paper Mario, they have medals to increase stats and give passive skills. There's there's lots of uh, bug denizens of uh, of bug area that need help, so you'll always have a few side quests on the go as well. I've been playing on hard mode, which Ooh, gives wow. some special rewards for beating bosses. And I don't know if it limits the amount of money you get after battles, but I've been finding myself in relative poverty for most of my playthroughs so far. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if that's to do with the hard mode or... The stuff you kill is just stingy in general. Like, <laughs> I've been jotting down stuff that I've been coming across in shops that I want to buy, but I never seem to have enough money. Or berries, I should say. What with paying uh. for inns to heal up and ingredients. But hey, that's probably just hard mode show business, baby. <laughs> Anywho, in conclusion, I'd recommend this game, but not if you're an aforementioned uh, winger who wanted Origami King to be another thousand-year door. You can play something mm. else different and learn to appreciate the multitude of good games with good writing and art and mechanics. Just because they don't have flat Mario in them doesn't make them not worth it. I promise you this. <laughs> indeed. Mm. Absolutely indeed. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe maybe people will now stop bugging Nintendo for a, uh, a classic Paper Mario game. Hmm. Uh. How about you, Chris? What have you been playing this week? Well, after years of deliberation, I've finally bought a new computer. Eee, He's done it. Exciting. He's only gone and bloody done it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've mentioned yeah. this a few times like since we've been doing the show. I've, I've never really been a PC gamer, but after kind of umming and ahhing for ages, I decided that at this point, 
I need a decent computer because I need to do my work. Like I'm starting a new teaching job in a few short weeks now and I won't have access to my old work laptop that I used as my like daily driver that whole time. And as all teachers do when they're trying to get resources, you go to Staples or Alienware. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, maybe. Um, I I need it to make more videos for for the YouTube channel. I I have been uh, absent for for a good month or so because of moving house and then because my computer I was using just gave up and died and and lastly it means that i can because i've spent a bit of money now play decent pc games and as as you mentioned in your little joke i i went <laughs> i went pretty big and i've bought basically like a desktop replacement laptop so it is a, a monster and it eats through anything i've tried it with so far like as an example i i put on my one pound pass for a xbox game pass as the introductory offer and it plays forza horizon 4 at 60 frames a second on ultra for going through Amazing. my 4k tv like just just <laughs> unbelievable power really but the stuff i've been more interested in rather than these kind of like big first party microsoft games has just been all the stuff i've missed out on just like the weird pc stuff so this week i've i've played firstly uh, the super mario 64 port that came out not that long ago like for anyone not aware uh, this wasn't part of the big giga leak we discussed last week it was just a team of basically like hobbyist coders had just deconstructed the original mario 64 rom and and from that have managed to recompile it to run natively on pcs or there's ports now to other kind of homebrew consoles and whereas emulation is always kind of just attempting to do a best fit to play a game when, when you break it down like this it will just run perfectly and it, and it means that Mario 64, I, I can play it at 4K. It, it runs at 60 frames a second up from the 25 the PAL version did on the N64. It's got remastered models and textures. It's it's absolutely incredible. And it, it seems really crazy as well that, in theory, this, this port I'm playing now is better than whatever we can get on the Switch later this year officially. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's, it's yeah. an insane thing. Uh, and it just shows as well how good this game is. Because without yeah. any tweaks, it still feels amazing. So I've got like 40 odd stars so far. I might go for 120. I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. So that's taken up a good chunk of my play. Nice. I've also played a couple hours of, of Black Mesa. Oh, yeah. The semi-recent fan remake of Half-Life. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, so well made. Extremely well made. And and for me, especially like I, I've only ever played Half-Life at, on either the PlayStation 2 port or the Dreamcast port and, and the two of them don't run brilliantly yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest uh, and although i'm not that adept at like mouse and keyboard games because i just haven't had the experience uh, i've played two three hours of that and really enjoyed like the first opening chunk of, of half-life and finally and I've, I've saved the best till last for me at least i've played lots and lots and lots of the original fantasy star online ah. um, my 49th favorite video game yeah because it, it has a pc port that's been maintained again by fan communities and whereas before when I was playing it via my, my Wii U emulation setup, it was like a, a relative nightmare to, to get going. Like the PC one was literally make an account, log in, plug in your gamepad, off you go. And it's got a decent daily play account still. And it's just, I find it such an addictive game because it's it's not that demanding, especially in the early stages. It's it's just a nice way to pass the time. So yeah, I've, I've really, really enjoyed all this. And this is the PC stuff I'm really excited about because all three of these projects are essentially made just by fans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've got a, a decompiled Mario 64 port, a totally remade version of Half-Life, which is now official, I guess, but it's still a, a fan-made project. And people keeping a game alive that was switched off officially 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Really, really amazing. And I've really enjoyed just having a computer that works. <laughs> That's yeah. been pretty nice. 
so yeah in the future maybe i'll, I'll see what else what other weird oddities i can i can dig out as well excellent well i look forward to hearing what you play next what about you what have you been playing well i so i i finished carrion it was it was a uh, really good fun a uh, few quibbles with it like the main one being that you don't have a map which really kind of discourages you from exploring trying to find all the hidden secrets i mean to be fair it's going for like the authentic you're a monster experience so like i mean you wouldn't find cthulhu rising out of the deep checking google maps and then continuing you know you're a monster and you use other methods of locating where you need to go which which are quite cool like you can sense where like biomasses are and things like that so you can sort of get your bearings but then that does jar with the general metroidvania setup of the game and i, I feel that it, it I don't know. I think it might have suited something of, of I don't know, a bit more of a linear experience because it sort of straddles that line, not really delivering either. Hmm. The the other thing is is the game just just sort of ends. Like I was I was expecting it like a big reveal or a big climax or something. It felt like it was ramping up towards something sort sort of like inside, which I sort of cited as a, a reference for it last week. Hmm. I think it could have been an outstanding game if it either lent into the metroidvania setup fully or went down the line of something like inside and just provided an incredible linear experience but still i mean it was really good fun and i, I would recommend it but uh yeah i feel like feels like it might have been half finished and sort of quickly top and tailed to uh to to, to release it maybe but yeah, still good. It's good. But to continue my Metroidvania-ing properly, I finally got around <laughs> to playing a game called Owlboy on my Switch. Oh, it's pretty, but I know nothing else about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I bought it when it first came out, which was quite a while ago now, and mainly because, well, obviously I love a Metroidvania, especially on a handheld, and <laughs> it's got gorgeous, this gorgeous pixel, pixel art, art style. It looks stunning, absolutely stunning. And it had good reviews, but similar to what I was saying about my initial response to when I played Slay the Spire and sort of having recently overdosed on like roguelikes, so, so I didn't really get into Slay the Spire initially. Every time I've tried to dive into Owlboy, I feel like I've sort of overdosed on Metroidvania games a bit and then didn't have the drive to really get into it. But, but this time I, I haven't had that issue, which I'm, I'm really glad about because I'm having a, a really good time. It's really good fun. It's really well written. It's It's got, uh, yeah, good mechanics. It, I mean, I've, I've kind of been spoiled now by playing Ori and the Blind Forest because like that's that's how you make a, a, just, a, just a game. That's how you make a Metroidvania <laughs> game. It's so beautiful and so fluid and everything. So anything that's not that feels just a bit more clunky but it's still yeah it's really really good i'm i'm, I'm enjoying it it's um yeah I, I, I don't know how far through it i am i don't think it's a terribly big game but um so yeah so i could be approaching approaching the end of it soon not sure but the defining gaming experience of my week has been fully diving into a real surprise treat which is sea of thieves Ooh, rares game i could run this now you could and you should <laughs> I have it on Xbox Game Pass. It is well worth the $3.99 a month I pay, <laughs> and then some. So I've mentioned in passing that there's a little group of friends from uni who I've been playing games with on a weekly basis throughout lockdown, which has been, it's been really, really nice. It's a nice way of sort of staying in touch with, with some of them and, and also sort of meeting some new people. And we've mainly been alternating between Worms Armageddon and Counter-Strike with occasional rounds of Xenotic thrown in, which I don't know if you've ever played Xenotic. It's like an open source Unreal Tournament style game. Oh, okay. That's got just a huge amount of community content to play. It's very, very good. 
anyway, some of these guys had, you know, really encouraged me to try Sea of Thieves. And they'd said that it had done a similar thing to games like No Man's Sky and Battlefront 2, where, like, after it had been greeted with a bit of a lukewarm reception at launch, the developers had continued to work on the game and, and improve and refine its experience to something that which, which was, you know, kind of fantastic. When the developer of a game is rare, you, you know that they have the potential to pull out a real masterpiece. Like, I, I think I probably would have given this game a miss if I needed to buy the game outright, but because it's part of the Xbox Game Pass, I thought, well, I'm, I may as well, I may as well give it a whirl. And I'm, I mean, I'm so glad I did. And, and also, I'm really glad that I was able to be introduced to it by a crew of fairly seasoned pirates as well, because <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's definitely a game best played with friends. Although I have enjoyed taking just like a small sloop out on a, on a solo voyage on my own too. But we had this fantastic night earlier in the week where four or five of us went out on a, like a big galleon. And it was great because this ship is huge and you need like sort of multiple people on board to actually operate it as opposed to a sloop where you can kind of do everything yourself. And we went on so many quests and just got so much loot that I felt like an absolute lord of pirates. <laughs> <And> <laughs> the pirate king. That's nice. Yeah, it is. I have a friend who's started playing No Man's Sky in the past couple of weeks. And he said, mm. like, I, I got it to play with my friends, but they were so ahead of me. So I'm just going to just gonna play it by myself over my weekend. And then I'll hopefully be close to getting there, getting to where they are. I saw him after that weekend, and I was like, "Oh, how how'd you get on with it?" He said, "Oh, I've got further than they are, so uh, tables have turned." <laughs> well, actually, it's it's something that I really like about this game is actually is the way that it's balanced in terms of because I was I was initially concerned about that as well, and I thought, "Oh, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to have no good gear, or you know, I'm just going to be absolutely useless compared to compared to my friends," but actually whether you've played it for years or if you've only played it for days, you're all kind of on an even keel because everything you spend money on in the game is just purely cosmetic. You can buy different outfits and different accessories, different styles of instruments and weapons, and you can buy pets and outfits for pets and new stuff for your boat, different hulls, figureheads, wheels, sails, flags. It's all it's all customizable, you know, like so you could get like a real status piece if you've made like thousands and thousands of coin. But then also, that could be a bit of a sign that's going to attract attention from another ship on horizon who sees you and thinks, oh, they've got a really prestigious sail or flag. You can feel they're going to target in on you and because it's obvious that you're good at the game and you've got lots of loot that they might want. But other than just simply being more au fait with the way the game works, there isn't any advantage to having played the game for a thousand hours or not. You'll just look kind of cooler, which is really, really good. It's really, really good. And it meant that I felt that I was contributing whilst I was sort of learning the ropes a little bit, literally. <laughs> and also, you know, getting wise to to sort of how the game can work with, with other people on the same server. Like one of the things that was really, well, it was great. Like we were sailing up to an outpost to sell our loot. But first of all, one of us sort of went ahead because often you'd find other pirates hiding like waiting to ambush you when you rock up because like there's only certain places you can sell stuff so they might be waiting to ambush you so we sent one person ahead with like a little bit of loot to see whether or not there was there was anybody there and then once we knew the coast was clear the rest of us then started hauling everything in it's fantastic it, it gives you like a full pirate experience i love that i've got a pet cat and i've dressed him up in a hat 
with a peg leg and he follows me around like <laughs> i can pick him up and give him a cuddle or i can show him off or if i crack out an instrument to play a shanty he'll conduct me or i'll just turn around and i'll catch him splashing about in the shallow water on a beach it's just oh it's a it's lovely speaking of instruments you've got just default in your inventory you've got like six different instruments and you can just play an array of different shanties that you can choose from and it's it's just great like if one of your crewmates is playing and and you join in it will bolster the arrangement and it sounds fantastic like some of my favorite moments the other night were when we were just sailing between islands like someone was on the ship's wheel someone was keeping an eye on navigation in the the captain's quarters the rest of us were you know just standing on the deck with our pets playing a shanty <laughs> as we sailed across the choppy waters and then like a megalodon just like launches out of the deep and attacks Ooh. us and then you're trying to coordinate your crew to like like load the cannons you know man the cannons you got to like repair the lower decks to stop it flooding and then you got to get somebody like on a on their bucket to like bail out the flooding water there's somebody on the wheel you know and the, and somebody on the sails to try and get us the hell out of there like so exciting just brilliant such a good experience and i haven't even mentioned like how good the game looks like I, Obviously, one of the, the, the selling points of the game was, and something that's been mentioned to me many times, is it's the best water you'll see in a game. And it is. It is extraordinary. Like, when you're in the sea, you feel like you are, you're absolutely done for. It feels like a wild, untamable sea. <laughs> and when you're on, when, when you're on a boat in a storm, it feels so real and so dangerous and so oh, it's just it's it, and oh, it's amazing it looks amazing and the sky matches the sea in quality sometimes you just watch just stand and watch the sunset crack out the accordion savor the moment it's yeah it's it's an incredibly well-made game and i'm yeah i'm, I'm having a really good time playing it and I'd, I'd yeah i'd certainly recommend other people giving it a try especially if you've got some mates who'll play with you it's yeah it's Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Wow. I, d I didn't want to interrupt you as you were in the flow and saying such nice things, but I just wanted to say even Keel did not pass me by. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do. That's fine. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Rank and Vile is a podcast dedicated to ranking every horror movie ever made from best to worst. Every single one of them. Each episode, we add a couple more to our list of hundreds and then justify why we think Killer Clowns from Outer Space is a better movie than Dead Ringers. It, it, no, really, that, that did actually end up happening. Check us out on the Greenlit Podcast Network where you can find a new episode every Wednesday. Should we move on to the rankings? Oh, go on then. Yes, let's do it. Starting this week, we have Chris's computer game. Bloody hell. Your 26th favourite video game, please, when you're ready, Mr. Dow. My game this week is a handheld game. Ooh. I think handheld games are, or they can be very special, because they allowed games to be as much about the locations that you played them in as the locations they depicted. Like, as, as some examples, I, I remember when I had Animal Crossing New Leaf and I was playing that on a daily basis... I, I remember sitting on a bench in a shopping centre in Chatham after I'd just passed my maths and English initial teacher professional skills tests. Oh, brilliant. And, and I sat in that shopping centre and I just let people walk by and thought, like, it was just such a massive feeling of relief. Like, I, I'd been really worried about those tests, got it out of the way, all done, and I could just sit and enjoy my little town. And it didn't matter where I was. It was like, 
you know, it just became part of the bustle of the, the ambience of my little village. I remember when I used to play Luminez 2 on the bus to Canterbury every single day when I was doing my foundation to my foundation for art college. I remember as well playing WarriorWare in, in my back garden on my old unlit Game Boy Advance on a really hot summer's day mm-hmm. uh, with my brother Tom looking over my shoulder and laughing at the micro game where you have to jump over a little hot dog car. Brilliant. It's, it's just like the, the sensation of like real world place is, is such a unique thing, obviously, to handheld play. And, and today's game is one that sits in my memory in several locations, like lots of different places. Firstly, as a really young child. I remember being drawn in by its its gold box and I picked it up before I had a drive across the country to see family uh, down in Bournemouth when I was very young. It was a game at that time that I totally failed to connect with. And instead on that trip, I played uh, a game called Dino Blaster, which was like a just a reskin of Bomberman. I, I played a lot of Tetris because they were like more immediate, they were more approachable and they were just more understandable to me as someone who was really young at the time. But sat in the backseat of the car, I do remember putting this cartridge in probably looking through like my big magnifier and light combo on, on my yellow chunky <laughs> Game Boy and, and watching like this opening cinematic on a Game Boy game and thinking like uh, across the first 15 or 20 minutes that this was a game with like an actual quest and a story. And it, it was a game that had the protagonist in a strange place without the initial means to really do anything other than to talk to people and start to explore. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, <laughs> I just, it didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't the sort of game I had any experience with at all. I'm sure you both know I'm talking about Link's Awakening. Yes. This is obviously (laughs) Minty's 30th favourite video game of all time. It is a disarming, heady, surreal adventure. And at the time, especially, you know, lined up on my shelf next to Dino Blaster and Tetris and everything else, it stuck out like a sore thumb in my own collection. Because (laughs) what is it? (laughs) Like at that age, I I, I was... Yeah. How old was I? Seven, maybe? Six or seven? Eight at a push? But I, I was young and, and trying to sort of take hold of a game when the only sort of experience of things I'd had was quick, punchy, score-based arcade-style games at home on like the Master System and the Mega Drive. I, I didn't know what RPGs were. You know, I'd, I'd played platformers, I'd, I'd played shoot-em-ups or, or brawlers and fighting games, but I didn't know where a Zelda title really fit into this. And it wasn't until a second location, after thinking about the, the backseat drive, and this location is, is Jonathan and I's form room at secondary school. Yeah. And, and, and this is the point in, in that age when I was probably 11 years old where I started to make proper sense of what Link's Awakening was because by that time I had a, a better understanding of RPGs. I played games that had more like storyline and, and character development and everything else. But I, there was something very special about that place and, and what that meant in terms of our friendship and and kind of that that initial feeling of like connecting with someone about a hobby that obviously as we can see has endured for many many years <laughs> like at the start of secondary school I, I think it's fair to say we we probably weren't the coolest kids yeah, <laughs> and not. um you know <laughs> we've mentioned this a few times when, when doing this show but even at that age, I, I think we really cared about the things we cared about. Yeah. And and games were as important to me and you at 11 as they are now at 33. Yeah. And, and you know, when I played through Link's Awakening, you were like the Zelda savant. <laughs> and and you, you guided me through that, that handheld adventure and you gave me hints when I was stuck and you would nudge me in the direction of like the hidden seashells and pieces of heart as I was about to yeah. kind of walk past the juicy collectible. <laughs> there, there is no way I would have one probably picked up this game for years on if it wasn't for you and two i never would have finished it either and that brings me to the third location i associate with this game which is the corner of my living room 
sat on like a, a tiny footstool underneath a large lamp in the evening that always got put on in lieu of the big light to, to show that it was nighttime. <laughs> I, pr- I had my back pressed against the like ridged radiator we had in that room to, to keep warm because I think it was the winter. I'm holding my Game Boy Color now, my little purple Game Boy Color. Long since got rid of my yellow Game Boy. At that time, I'm probably admiring like Link's retrofit coloration that comes with playing it on a, mm-hmm. on a Game Boy yeah. Color. And at this stage, I, I pushed through and beat the game. And, and I, you know, I, I was able to wake the windfish. Uh, I was able to watch Coalent Island fade to dust. And the whole thing is like, I have a vivid memory, not just of, of beating the game, which is actually quite hazy, but of just that place, like sat in that corner of the room and, and remembering the color of the light, remembering the warmth on my back and everything else. And like, I'm certain at the time, I probably would have told one of my parents as much of the plot as I could have recalled in, in painstaking detail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because in the same way, like I remember a couple of years before, I I had a copy of the Goosebumps book, The Phantom of the Auditorium, which was the first Goosebumps book I read. And I remember getting to the end of it and then hurriedly trying to summarize the whole thing to my mum in the garden. It's, it's like, I, I love how games and other media and everything else give you the opportunity sometimes to have a shared experience. And And at the time, like, obviously I would have spoken to you about this game when I came back into school the next day, but a big part was just wanting to tell someone at the time it was like oh, all this weird stuff happened it was all it was all like a dream <laughs> like just like a, a desperate to, to get it out it's such a weird game though and, and i mean minty went into far more good detail a few weeks back and i'd recommend anyone listen to that if you didn't but this was probably my earliest taste of surrealism oh yeah in, in terms of like as a yeah. rapper for for a story and and it's a game that is predicated on on such otherness and just like weirdness that I, I didn't appreciate it all at the time because I didn't have the knowledge of Zelda and I didn't have a huge working knowledge of, of Nintendo stuff to really understand how it was drawing from other franchises. But looking at it more recently, it's it's a game about like liminal dream spaces. And and to look at it now with, with proper hindsight and, and proper context that this was Nintendo trying to make a handheld version of, of Link to the Past. Yeah. It's it's got such a like dreamy setting and, and general oddness that I think it's best for me that it exists now in a new location. It's not just in, in the back seat, and it's not in the form room, and it's, it's not in my lounge exclusively. It's just something that kicks about in the back of my head. And, and when the Switch remake came out, I, I really excitedly bought it, and I put it in my Switch, and I played through to kind of the end of the first dungeon, and then I just stopped playing it, and, and I've never gone back. And, and I think... I might have had other games that I was obsessing over at the time or, or had other things I was interested in. But more importantly, I think that because it didn't have this years years long like preamble and approach from, from car trips and form rooms to footstools, a, a game like Link's Awakening could never have grabbed me in the same way because there's no way to kind of build that same sense of intrigue that segues seamlessly into a game's narrative and mechanical oddness unless it's organic. And and in 2019, I think Link's Awakening made too much sense. <laughs> like it, it's something that I I understood what the game was. I'd seen it to the ending. I I knew how it fit in the the kind of Zelda timeline or canon or whatever you want to call it. And because it wouldn't have required my own kind of awakening in order to understand it, I don't think I was ever going to enjoy that remake as much as I could have if I'd never kind of had the experience before. It it just was something that was just something that existed, mm. and. You know, it, it acted more as like a nostalgia trip, which as we talked at the beginning of the episode about remakes and remasters, sometimes that is what you want. But because it was such a, a unique and, and special title for the way it plays on, on everything else around it and its own franchise, 
I don't think that had the same weight and value just because of how I was approaching it now with a proper working understanding of what it was. Like for the time, Link's Awakening, I think, represents a perfect synergy for me between like personal context and my personal kind of relationship with it and the, and the places I played it and everything else that goes with it. The context of development, like now understanding how, how it fits in amongst these other games. And also this really special collective shared experience that I had with you, Jonathan. Mm. And, and you know, at that time, I was the, the Zelda apprentice and, and you were kind of the, the <laughs> Zelda sensei walking me through it. <laughs> But I mean, what am I even saying? Is it? Is this is number twenty six? Uh, there we go. It's it's the Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening, and it's a game that I don't think I can ever properly return to, because it was the, all the kind of stuff that built up to it was the real lightning in a bottle moment that made this such a special game. Yeah, and and it's it's the memory of that and kind of the memory of growing up with this game, just being in the back corner of a little shelf, that makes it so special to me. So yeah, thank you for for being part of that journey because I like I said I would not have got through it if I hadn't met you at that stage and known that you were so obsessed with it on your Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. You, well, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. It's um yeah. It's it's mad to think about. Like I don't know exactly how old I was when I got Link's Awakening, but I'd certainly had it for a, you know a good couple years yeah. by the time I met you. And I was still playing it. Yeah. And I'd, I'd completed it. One of my enduring memories of it is playing it in our form room in year seven. Yeah. I, I think I remember once challenging Dev, one of our other good friends growing up, Christopher Devereaux. I challenged him to like a race at lunchtime to see who could get furthest in Link's Awakening, starting a new game. And I, I managed to get through the first three dungeons in like one lunchtime, <laughs> which is mad. Uh, obviously, I'll share more thoughts of, of, of my experience of that game. Another day. Another day. For now, let's move on to Minty's 26th favourite video game of all time. Mm, Great, thanks. So, I'm treading old ground here with today's entry. We've already heard why Jonathan loves this game so much. To quote, I remember so clearly the day I got it. Wonderful words, a real testament to this fantastic title. (laughs) (laughs) We've heard him talk about how it's jam-packed with content, unlockable characters, uh, great levels, missions, single-player, multiplayer modes for people who didn't get Wi-Fi until maybe 2009. There was lots of stuff to enjoy on your own in Mario Kart DS and Incredible 3D. It was a looker (laughs) and it played just as well. Head back over to our number 35s to get a more in-depth look at Mario Kart DS as a game. Jonathan's eloquence and erudite summation is more than enough to capture my feelings for the game itself. A fantastic, really strong Mario Kart title that you could play in the palm of your hand and anywhere. The sheer technical brilliance of it was enough to put it past Double Dash in my list for me, as well as uh, another reason I'm going to come up to here now. In the same way that Pokemon Emerald placing on my list fairly highly was due mainly to the circumstances surrounding it, instead of uh, the admittedly strong game that it was in and of itself, what places this game so highly on my list is it's the first video game I ever really played with other people. Well, other people that I liked, and (laughs) a game that I was also good at. I tried playing Halo 2 online at a friend's house before getting into Mario Kart, but it's a first-person shooter, and coming in completely fresh and immediately trying to square up to people who've been playing online for years was never going to 
work out terribly well for me. I mean, and of course, playing a first-person shooter on a console is inherently bunk. Well, this is it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm only halfway towards being an idiot savant. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely devoured the single player of this game, as as is to be expected. Uh, we've already gone through just how the new tracks were fantastic, and also the 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 gussied up retro tracks were wonderful as well. Oh, and the missions! I I I looked over the list when you mentioned them, and I was just like, oh yeah, I remember doing that. I remember I remember all the uh, all the tracks that had you driving through like the half tires in order getting out of luigi's mansion backwards mm. that sort of thing yeah that's that's the kind of story mode that you really miss in sort of sporty games i, I really wish that that would come back sometime soon but as more and more people in our friendship group started to get nintendo ds's and started to get the game as well we decided to start playing against each other in the tutor room on lunch break <laughs> crackle of excitement at twelve thirty was almost palpable we'd hurry up to mr cox's room and crack out the ds's under the watchful gaze of his collection of historical postcards and have at it <laughs> so good so good we'd do a race or two and then uh, we'd, we'd we'd pass the ds over to the person next to us so everybody could have a go and if you didn't have a copy of the game but you had your own ds no worries you can download play and jump in with us like the accessible price point of the handheld and the fact that you didn't really need a game to play was just fantastic it's a really equitable setup i like thinking back to that time and remembering all of us sat down our sat around our desks playing a tournament that uh, inevitably ended up with the eternal grudge match of me and georgina what a wonderful conduit to to just good times with friends it's, it's the first time that multiplayer gaming had any sort of meaning to me because i didn't really have anybody to play with on the home console so being able to take in a multiplayer game to a place where other people also had the same game oh it was it was it was very exciting i, I really loved it there we go mario kart ds less about the game and more about the idea of playing with other people top stuff what i really like about doing this show now as we get higher up is that when we first started i was always excited to talk about games that i didn't think you would have covered and what's changed over time is that i love hearing about games that have already come up yeah Mm. and and it's because it's then less about kind of trying to give an overview for for why the game is good and then it's more about these these personal memories so like like today being able to talk about Link's Awakening in context of of our friendship mm. and 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 like Minty you being able to talk about this not just about it being a Mario Kart game but about its place for you as a, as a social thing mm. that that's really exciting and and th- all these things are why why games are so good <laughs> because they they have these personal memories for people outside of just well I I pressed the button and a man went dead yeah yeah. they can be so much more than that and and it's really really lovely to hear it's it's fantastic i guess the placing of the lower games is interesting because i I don't know about you but i think when when i was making my list i had about 180 games Mm. yeah so i was like obviously all of these games well most of these games are good but the ones down the bottom they are going to be niche games because these are my individual interests and what i look for in a game so yeah as as we enjoy uh, the shared experience of playing them either individually or uh, as a group maybe in terms of things like mario maker or mm. the, the, those games where we can play online together or in the same room together which is a nice thing that we can do 
especially when we live close by. Yeah. I think once once we establish that people know that the know what these good games are about because somebody's uh, pops the proverbial cherry on the entry. <laughs> <laughs> then we can start talking about really getting into just why they mean so much to us down to a person. It's lovely. Yeah. It's really really nice. Absolutely. For now, let's finish off with my game. Jonathan Dunn, tell us about a game. My game this week is a masterpiece of modern 2D gaming. And it's one of the many reasons why I'm so glad that there is funding and a platform for independent developers. Because I don't think you would get this level of artistry or this finely honed experience from a major publisher. Smaller developers don't necessarily need to worry about big marketing campaigns, huge multiplayer systems, thousands of pieces of DLC and subscription packages to try and balance the costs of bringing in Hollywood actors to lend their faces to a game and huge development teams to churn out enormous open world games on an annual basis. There's only a couple of other indie games to come on my list, so I definitely think this game is a contender for the best indie game possibly ever made. It's Playdead's Inside. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but for those of you who uh, missed our discussion about Inside before, when Chris played through it fairly recently, or for those of you who haven't played it at all, let me tell you about it. Inside is a 2D platform adventure game. It's made by Playdead, who are the company that made Limbo, the dark, moody, monochromatic platform adventure game. And Inside is very much in a similar vein. In fact, when I first saw the artwork for Inside, I, I wasn't that impressed because to me, it looked like Playdead had just taken the intervening six years to discover the colour red. <laughs> like, other than that, <laughs> it just looked the same as Limbo. <laughs> and it would be a barefaced lie if I were to say that they are, in fact, drastically different games, but because they're not. They, they feel quite similar. They look quite similar. They've got a similar cinematic quality to them. So... Initially, I was convinced I didn't need to play Inside. I played Limbo. I really enjoyed it. But the reviews for Inside were just so overwhelmingly positive that, you know, when I saw it for not too many pounds on the PlayStation Store, I thought, well, I may as well give it a go. And as Chris accurately described, <laughs> fucking hell, I'm so glad I did. <laughs> oh, this game. There really is so much about Inside that sets it apart from Limbo. It's, I think it's a phenomenally more sophisticated game. I mean, certainly in terms of the cinematic experience it, it provides. Like, I played through it this last week to refresh my memory of it because, I mean, it's only short. It's about three or four hours. And, you know, I, I really wanted to do it justice, especially because Chris played it fairly recently and it was outside of the, the rules for including in, in the podcast on his list. So I want to, wanted to make sure I honoured it for, for, for both of us. <laughs> and just playing through the start of the game, it, it's amazing how much the game does to, to set the scene, the atmosphere and the story with so little. No dialogue, no tutorial. You don't even have a, a title screen, really, to say press A to start or select new game. You just press A and, you, and, and you're into it. You're basically just running right and... From the animation and the staging around the, the 2D plane you're travelling on, you know that you're in danger. There are people with torches searching, and you know from watching any Spielberg film from the 80s or 90s that this means they're after you. And this sets the predominant enemy of the game as 
I guess, exposure. Mm. And this relationship with light is it's really interesting in the game because you're trying to stay out of the light for fear of getting caught. But also the game uses light in very clever ways to subtly signpost your way through the game. So you're constantly trying to tread that line between following the light, but not falling fully into it. And the way it paces these opening scenes, from the time of the dogs running after you and the way enemies are hunting you, forcing you to take cover and, and slowly creep through the scene and then to run when they've caught you. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable. And as you continue, the game starts slowly building context. You see the remains of some pigs on the bank of a river and you're taking cover in cornfields, immediately evoking, you know, ideas of alien invasion and some, some weird stuff going on. And it draws you in so effectively that you feel utterly compelled by it. You can't tear yourself away from finding out more and finding out more. And then, well, when you reach the end, you, you wish you hadn't. But uh, <laughs> there we go. And, and this side of the game is something that really sets it apart from Limbo. And, and one of the brilliant things about Limbo is what the title implies. You know going in where you are and what to expect, or rather to expect the unexpected and, and the macabre and the twisted and surreal. And, and that's a great atmosphere to be in for the, for the few hours it, it takes to play Limbo. But inside really is a masterclass in design, in how to tell a story in the most minimalist way possible. It does so much with so little and is, you know, all the more effective for it, I think. And the game plays like an absolute dream from like the beautiful subtle details of the animation, like the way your boy just, just puts his hands out when he runs up to a wall. I, I love that detail. And, and just the movement and the way different movement abilities, just like climbing and jumping, are so, so smooth and fluid. And the level, like the, I guess level design areas, like puzzle designs, they're second to none in this game. I don't remember Limbo being as much of a, a puzzle platform game as Inside is. I mean, it, it, I can't really remember it very well at all, to be honest. But the puzzles in inside keep on surprising you with new, clever mechanics. And again, you, you just want to keep on playing to see what creativity will be in the next area or, or what the next set piece will be. And, and the balance of the puzzles is perfect. Like they don't feel like out and out puzzles to solve. They're very organically placed and you'll come across the solutions just as organically. And they're all, I mean, quite deceptively simple in their setup. Nothing requiring a huge problem-solving algorithm or getting timings pixel perfect. Just the right balance of, of stretching your brain without being annoying. <laughs> it's just, it's genius. And the way the game presents itself as essentially one long, uninterrupted level is wonderful. It means you're always much more aware of, of what you've left behind because you haven't stopped gone to black and loaded the next area. It's it's not in the previous world. You know, your, your journey feels like you're actually going through it in, in real time, which, you know, essentially you are. And one of the nice things about it never cutting away is it kind of confronts you to, to, to stay with the reality of the situation. It stays with the horror. You can't look away. You just have to stay in it and fully take in the dystopian body shock horror weirdness that's going on around you. And that's that, again, is incredibly compelling. I think one of the overriding factors of this game is, in, in terms of its impact, is the way that it generates tension. Mm. I mean, a, a danger sign that things are going to get scary in a game is when dogs are involved as enemies. Like, <laughs> it's it's the moment you always fear in a Resident Evil game. And it's the same here. They're, they're wicked fast and they'll kill you as soon as they catch you. 
And the way the game engineers the puzzle so that you escape with the narrowest margin makes my, my bumhole pucker so much I fear my entire buttocks will invert. <laughs> the timings of this game are are insane. Yeah, like yeah. it would have have to be it had to be play tested to just the nth degree. Yeah, be, yeah. because as you say, it's like every encounter you were getting away with like the edge of your shoe is still going to be snapped out by by a dog. Exactly. But yeah. it never feels like you're having to really I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's you have more time than you think, but it gives the impression that you don't, which I think is that the perfect yeah. way to do a puzzle like this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And as you've said before, Chris, like tension is usually the more scary thing yeah. than it's terrifying, but not because things are jumping out at you. In fact, it, it's it's actually because you can see them and you know exactly how much time you have to escape before they reach you that makes it all the more stomach twistingly, yeah. penis retractingly tense. <laughs> like, up inside you. It, right, I had to thumb it out like a marshmallow. There's one moment where these dogs are chasing you and you reach a fence to, to climb over to, to get to safety. But on the other side, your escape is blocked by some planks of wood which need to be prized off one by one. And the dogs can run around the other side of your fence. So you have to keep luring them back from one side of the fence to the other so you can get enough distance from them to remove all the wood one by one to get out. And my God, I mean, I was practically curled into a fetal ball for parts of that. It was so tense. Another incredible moment I loved. It's during one of the underwater sections when you've got your little submergible orb. And the first time you go in there, you just get a very brief glimpse of some shadowy figure crossing the camera. And it's a split second and the game wants you to know that you're not alone. It's then quite a while until anything actually appears in the water with you. But the longer you go without them appearing, you just get increasingly more tense and tense until you feel like you're about to explode. There's also a lovely bit when you're in the submergible where you uh, pull off a full free willy in your submarine. And that's wonderful. (laughs) I'm quite surprised actually how well you got on with the game, Chris, because like I said... The tension is 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 usually the stumbling block for you in a horror yeah. game. But I mean, I found it inside more tense than Resident Evil 4 by a long way. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know why I could manage this. But but something drew me in more than a Resident Evil game does. Yeah. I, I felt so committed to inside like 10 minutes in. Like the initial section is, is such a rush. And and you feel immediately like you are this, this boy's caretaker. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> What, what a feeling. I mean, I haven't said as well that the game is quite a beautiful piece of mm. art as well. Like with light and darkness playing such a major role in the game, they really needed to get the lighting right in here. And it's a tough thing to do whilst you've also got this I mean, almost monochromatic art style and these very minimalist features, but they do it so beautiful. There's so many jaw-dropping scenes that are all happening in the background whilst the camera is sweeping and panning to accentuate the cinema of it all but but never you know so much that it's detracting from what you're you're doing so you can easily keep focus on where you are and you know i mentioned the animation earlier but it's really worth saying just how extraordinarily well animated this game is and it's and it's not just for the animation of your main character it's it's the ai of the animation oh, that keeps so yeah. many things moving in tandem and interacting with each other so beautifully realistically but also in a way that doesn't draw attention to it it's it's quite phenomenal it really really is and yeah like i said i think this is an absolute masterpiece of the game as as close to a perfect game as i can think of and the way the game builds to its climax and delivers on that is breathtaking (laughs) awe-inspiring and just deeply resonant 
Like, I won't say much more about it now because it's an experience that deserves to be played and witnessed firsthand. So if you haven't played Inside, please, 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 I implore you, buy it, play it. It's not too expensive. It's not too long. And I promise you, you won't regret it. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Oh, what a piece of art. What a piece of interactive art. I thought that my second playthrough might not have the same impact as the first time I played through it, but it really does. And it's something I can see myself revisiting kind of on a regular basis, almost like on a yearly basis, I'll I'll play through it again and again. I I made Georgia play through it uh, not that long ago. Mm, At gunpoint, yeah. (laughs) But she, she played through Limbo and Inside and enjoyed both of them. So it's something as well that even if you are not like you have to be a pro gamer kind of thing. These are experiences that no. translate very well to people that might just casually play games and enjoy, you know, individual titles here and there. It, they, they hold up well for that reason. Yeah. What, what I noticed when I was, you know, watching Georgia play through it as opposed to playing it myself is, is how much, like you mentioned, is going on in the background of a scene. Mm, yeah. And, and what I think Inside actually does really, really well that I don't know how many people give it credit for is it is a 2D game. You're always operating on a flat 2D plane, but it uses depth remarkably well for a game that you it really, really you cannot yeah. access that depth, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and like you mentioned, that that dog puzzle with the fence. Yeah. You can't go backwards. No. You, you know, you you can't retreat into the distance where the dogs can to kind of get round this fence. And that adds this whole other element of depth that makes you really think about the form of the world you're able to to access. Yeah. And that's really special as well. Because it's it's kind of an understanding that, okay, in playing a game you have to have certain layers taken away from you. Otherwise there is too much, you know, yeah. we, we kind of, you have to suspend your disbelief to a certain amount when you're playing any sort of game. And and that's a very literal way of doing it. And yet it feels completely organic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely can't wait to see what they do next. It makes me very, very proud of my Danish heritage. Yeah. Played as a Danish company and Scandinavia and the Danes in particular, admittedly I'm biased, do minimalism better than a- anyone else. <laughs> and and this game is, it totally realises just what you can do artistically with minimalist approaches and designs. And apparently their, their third game they're working on, well, they teased it back in January in 2017. Wow. So it's, uh, you know, it's on its way. <laughs> uh, apparently it's a fairly lonely, it's a lonely sci-fi game somewhere in the universe. And um, they said okay. that... It will likely be they'll likely be moving into 3D with it, so it'll be interesting to see see what they do with it. So there we have it, another three games. First of all, we had Link's Awakening, and then we had Mario Kart DS, and then Inside. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share the podcast on social media, tweet about it, put it on Instagram, put it on Snapchat, tell your friends. You can reach out to us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash hour3cents. Chat to us there. Feel free to ask us any questions that you might like us to answer in a future episode. Talk to us about the games you're playing or take us to task on on our opinions on on the games that we've discussed today. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I live at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. Please do check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe to it. Share it. Love it. Suggest to us more things that you'd like to see on there from us. Also check out our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash O3C podcast. And also, if you really fancy it, do check out our Patreon page as well. And we shall see you next week for our 25th favourite video games of all time. Bye bye, everybody. Mm
loose quarter. On the Greenlit Podcast Network, Chris Sibbs and Matt Wilson. And in this quarter, VHS oddities, confusing animation, and modern not-so-classics. Plus snacks, movie fighters. We watch movies and beat them up. <laughs>